Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of WCM Fireside Chats. My name is Brian Cyril, coming to you from a weird, undisclosed location <laughs> in an Airbnb. Ben, do you, before we get started and introduce everybody, uh, I just want to say, um, do, you, do you remember when you were a kid and you used to play sports and you used to have like a bad game and you would have to wait till next week with the team to improve your score? And so you were thinking about it all week. Did you do that? Did you play sports? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So that's what I feel like. Like we had to do that show without Kara last week, and it was I've just been waiting seven days, and now Kara's back. So I feel like we're whole again. It's gonna be a good show again. So. Oh yeah. Well, I do need to apologize. I had kind of a family emergency come up last week and uh, disappeared a little bit. So a big apologies to both my co-hosts. I'm sure none of the audience cares. <laughs> I didn't even know you were gone till halfway through the show. Exactly. I was like, where's Carol? Yeah. Come on. That's not nice. I knew I wasn't going to be that good. It's just, yeah. So, um, it was so a great really, show. You guys did a great job. Yeah. No, well, Ben might have done a good job. Oh. I need you to carry me. I'm just pulling <laughs> So, okay. So we have a awesome show here on the National Park Service. Uh, got some really good guests for you. Uh, ben, you want to let everybody introduce themselves? Yeah. Why don't we, that way we don't screw up titles. We can start with Kurt. Um, so Kurt, just kind of tell us a little bit about what you do. I'm the uh, editor and founder and National Parks Traveler, a nonprofit media organization that covers national parks and protected areas largely across the world, but uh, predominantly here in North America. Yeah, and, and uh, for uh, the audience who doesn't know, National Park Travel, nationalparkstraveler.org, and it's a really good um, website. I know I've tuned a couple people on in our industry to it just to keep up on um, some of the stuff that's national park related, and you guys are expanding into Canada with some Parks Canada coverage here the last few months, so that's great. So. Yeah, no, we're really excited about it, and it's uh, bringing in a whole new audience, both to uh, the U.S. national parks as well as to the Canadian parks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Al, I guess just explain a little bit about what you do. Um, I'm sure a lot of our audience is familiar with, with you. So, I'm with the Recreational Adventures Company, and we are KOA's largest franchisee. We've got 15 KOA's spread across the country. And three or four of those uh, serve National Park Service markets. So we're outside the boundaries of the parks, uh, taking care of the same folks that go see them. Uh, and we also have one National Park Service concession in Virginia where we operate a campground within a national park. Okay. So this is a, a topic of great interest. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then... Um... It's Tamara, right? Or Tamara? Yeah, Hi, everybody. I'm Tamara Delaplane. I'm with the National Park Service. I am a project manager in an office called the Denver Service Center, which is a service office for all of the parks across the system. Okay. Yeah, don't be yeah. upset because Karen's yeah. been on the oh, show yeah. for a year almost, and he's still on the Yeah. <laughs> we just skipped Kara's last name. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, mine is an extreme case. Nobody can pronounce my name. I, even my son is 11 years old. He can barely pronounce his last name. It's fine. <laughs> so, I, and then, um, yeah, for people who've watched the show regularly, Kara from the Canadian Camping and RV Council is one of our co-hosts. And Brian, uh, founder and owner of Insider Perks, which is a marketing firm. Um, 
focused on the outdoor hospitality industry in Cleveland, Ohio. He's on a little bit of a trip this week, so he's broadcasting from a different location. So, and he's being real secretive about it. He doesn't want us to know where he's at. So, um, <laughs> at the end of the show, I'll tell you why. But, but um, I don't want Kenya to think that we're anything but utmost professional you know, on the show. So we'll have our fun at the end. Okay. I think this is our third and fourth um, week using this new software, which enables us to broadcast on a number of Facebook pages, and it actually brings in the comments from those Facebook pages so that we can see them live. I see Sally on YouTube um, commented and it popped up. So that's great. So if you guys have any questions or comments or anything, feel free to share those with us during the show and we can mention them and bring them on screen. And um, oh, Lasneed on Facebook said, it's hard to hear you, Brian. I'm sorry. Like I'm on the road. I tried. I'm doing my, I'm putting my best effort here. So <laughs> I guess we just have to accept it. <laughs> be a better show without me talking as much anyway. So, <laughs> so I was really excited about the show because we wanted to focus on the national park service and just the work that they've been doing and um, to try to, you know, to improve their parks and, um, to improve the camping experience and some of the maybe challenges they faced. And, you know, we all heard about the Great American Outdoors Act last year, which is, um, you know, the purpose is to help fund uh, the National Park Service and um, some of the projects that they need done. So I guess, you know, I just wanted to kind of start with, um, you know, what, you know, we've been reading stories about national park campgrounds adding new services and sites and everything i i guess um you know just kind of what's the focus of the national park service moving into 2021 i guess as far as that goes tamara so let me give you a little overview about what i've been managing for the last um couple years well since fall 2019 yeah. we've been in the park service we've been working on the second century campground strategy and kurt has written a couple articles about that thanks for that kurt um, and that has that strategy has three different parts. Um, one being looking at kind of our data service wide and across public lands. So um, not just the Park Service, but BLM, Forest Service, etc. And um, the second part of the strategy is looking as working with some contractors to develop some market analysis tools that will help the park service, help individual parks when they want to consider what kinds of upgrades they should make, what the market wants, and look at that from a business case scenario. And then the third part of the strategy is developing a National Park Service campground design guide to assist uh, park service employees in different parks in when they are upgrading parks like just uh, making things kind of consistent for users and for the visitors. Um, so we've been working on that strategy and um, things are going really well. The uh, market analysis tools will be available for parks to use in um, May or June of this year. And the campground design guide will be available by the end of April. That design guide was out for public review for two months at the end of 2020. Um, so some of you might have seen it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, 
<laughs> I don't know what's making all that noise in the background, but I, um, <laughs> um, I, uh, so that's all pretty exciting. I guess on the development front, what are you guys, you know, is the National Park Service, you guys are pretty active in improving the parks right now, correct? As far as adding sites or adding accommodations and things? So it does vary park by park. Yeah. Um, there's not a push to kind of force any one park to do, you know, any particular thing. But we are seeing that there's, you know, obviously an increase in RV owners and um, desire for users to be able to pull, pull their RVs and camp in parks. Um, but we also don't want to be in competition with the private sector. So that's where those market analysis tools come into effect so that a park can really look at their particular scenario, what options are available kind of just outside the park boundary and what might be needed within the park rather than areas where we could partner with someone like Mr. Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, yeah. I mean, I guess, Al, you operate a couple, you, you have the concessionary contract and then you operate a couple of parks near the national parks, I guess, um, which are still, you know, they're huge draws um, for campers. Uh, I guess, you know, what's, how do you work with like, how do you work with the National Park Service, I guess, or, you know, how does that relationship work out for you with the private parks and everything? Sorry, I don't know if that makes sense. Well, we participate with the National Park Service. We provided input on their uh, guides that they're developing right now. Um, we want to make sure that people that choose to stay in the National Park campgrounds have a good experience. The National Parks are, well, first of all, they're the leaders historically, and they started this thing. Uh, and they started people traveling to get to National Parks. And the private campgrounds uh, developed uh, both for the travelers that are on the way to the parks and for people that wanted amenities or services or there weren't enough sites available in the parks. Uh, there wouldn't be a robust private campground industry the way it is if it wasn't for the National Park Service and what they developed. So we want people to have a good experience there. Um, it, Tim was right that they have to approach development very carefully now that people have invested their private money to develop campgrounds outside the parks um, to not impact their business negatively, but to find a way to make um, modernizing the National Park campgrounds a win for everybody. Uh, one of the things that I, I feel is important to consider are the tents, uh, tenters. Uh, tenting is the gateway to uh, outdoor recreation, to camping in all kinds of campgrounds. They graduate from that to maybe a pop-up to an RV. Um, but everybody's ideal is the great tent site in a national park. And that draws a lot of people into the industry. Uh, so I wanna make sure that uh, not all the campsites in national parks get converted to RV friendly sites because in many cases that doesn't satisfy the tenter. Uh, and, and frankly, uh, national park campgrounds do a better job of accommodating tenters in many cases than private campgrounds do just in terms of the ambience of the site. 
So that was an important uh, consideration, I think, for bringing out to the National Park Service as they engage in this. The, yeah. uh, the private campground industry is adding 50,000 sites this year. So uh, it'd be kind of strange to say that the, the National Park Service shouldn't participate in the growth of the industry. It just needs to be approached sensitively. Yeah. You, know, you know, Ben, I think that uh, both Al and, uh, is definitely right about what he's saying about, you know, keeping space for the tenters out there. And uh, uh, Tamara, I think the Park Service has a, a um, huge challenge facing it. Uh, you mentioned marketing and what do the people want out there. I know a lot of the readers of the National Parks Traveler um, are concerned that the RV, the campgrounds are going to be enlarged largely for the RV audience and they're going to be stuck in their tents or their small pop-ups next to an RV that's got its generator going from six o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, which really takes away from the National Park experience. Um, as Al said, the, um, the private RV um, campgrounds outside national parks and gateway towns are better suited, I think, for, for handling the bigger RVs. I know I was uh, had Yellowstone National Park Superintendent Cam Sholley on our podcast uh, this past Sunday and, and the week before, actually, it was a, a two-part show. But he was saying that uh, he doesn't foresee creating any new campgrounds in Yellowstone or enlarging campgrounds. He might make uh, some more hookups available. But I think that the real challenge is providing for both those who RV into the parks, as well as for the tenters in providing um, each uh, a wonderful experience, which is the challenge the Park Service has to figure out. Um, glamping comes into this too as some i guess when you were looking at the design when you were creating this guide um you know did glamping play into what you guys created for the national park service as far as like yurts and unique accommodations and things like that so um in our market analysis contract we asked uh, the two contractors that we hired to look at um, the trends in the industry and they created mark two market analysis reports that included that concept of glamping or camper cabins or you know things beyond somebody bringing their own tent or their own um, rv or their own equipment maybe even renting equipment in some cases and so they addressed those concepts in the market analysis reports as potential for um, use in national park campgrounds but again it's it's really going to be up to each individual park and the yeah. market that it supplies um i want to go back to kurt's point and al's point on the tenters in that market analysis trends report the actually the two reports one from each contractor both contractors did find that still the majority of users are tent users it's kind of one out of four people have an RV, but three out of four people are tent campers. And that's based on um, research that they pulled from people like KOA and just the industry now. Those reports are available to the public on the National Park System Advisory Board website if um, you guys wanted to take a look at those. And then in our, um, in our campground design guide that Al mentioned he was able to provide input on, comments on, we do talk about the need to separate the users so that you don't have those tent campers right next to RV users because they do want kind of a different aesthetic 
and a different um, feel to their camping site. So in the guide, we recommend that if there are upgrades to an existing campground to say, make one out of three loops available for RV users, that you still separate out those tent campers so they don't get impacted by RV users, RV lights and generators, um, and that they have their own separate experience. It's a, maybe a little closer to nature and more what they're looking for. Because in the park service, we do have to balance those different user groups and, and um, allow for activities that meet all the different population's needs. Yeah. It's incredibly yeah. important, I think, to to keep that top of mind specific to this issue is it's tenting is such a kind of a gateway entry into this market. I'd be interested, do your market reports uh, go into any um, data specific to that conversion? Do you, do, do you guys do any data collection about that from tenting up to maybe a pop-up or an RV from there? Or, or are you just looking at existing numbers? So they in the um, trends reports, they did look at projections and changes and, and growth projections in the market. I don't think they really looked at exactly what you're talking about, Kara, as far as like what kind of is the tipping point for people to shift from tenting to RV use. Um, I don't really think that was addressed. Um, but yeah, it is an interesting question. You know, you mentioned you mentioned glamping and whatnot, and, and Kara, Parks Canada has really been uh, yes. kind of creative in, in some of the lodging or, or the accommodations they're providing in national parks for people who have never camped before or to, to wet their feet, so to speak. Uh, we had a story um, last week, I think it was, on uh, one of the parks and the different types of uh, accommodations people can rent. I saw it. Yeah, and really? and we're seeing they do some unique, really cool programming with a like a learn to camp program. I do believe this is pre-COVID, but they used to um, specifically uh, provide learn to camp programs, oftentimes in a in a glamping uh, unit uh, to kind of newer segments of the market, new demographics that maybe aren't typically seen as campers. So urbanites, um, new immigrants, things like that. They were they were specifically providing that programming. So they would. Uh, set it up so you know you could go out and set up a tent and learn how to build a fire and all of those things which I you know I really commend Parks Canada for for doing some unique unique stuff there I also think maybe this is a bit weather dependent but we do have a scenario where our parks are a bit less accessible for <laughs> a good portion of the year um, and, and so those glamping options really extend the seasonality and the ability to get into those parks um, just from a safety kind of warmth <laughs> shelter standpoint, for sure. You, you guys don't get snow up in Canada. That doesn't happen. No, no snow up there. <laughs> but, but I think some states down here have similar programs. I know like New York, I believe a few years ago, at least had started a get to know, you know, get camping program where they gave people like kits or whatever and taught them how to camp um, or taught them some of the basics. Um, I don't know. Does the National Park Service have anything like that? Does anybody know of anything like yeah, that? Yeah, they do. I mean, Grand Teton has canvas tents that are concession run. Um, Alaska parks have lots of cabins for rent, especially in the backcountry. Um, so there's a variety of options um, across the system. Flamingo has... Um, 
kind of elevated tense that looks like one of the Facebook users just put a link to in the chat. Um, so there's a lot of different options out there in the system. There's We've got 423 park units and um, I think last I looked, it was um, maybe around 130 of those have camping available in some, some sense. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, it, I think one of the things we hear too now is that, you know, I know on the private park sector, we're hearing just about the overwhelming number of people and um, some people are, you know, lack of sites, kind of stuff like that. I guess I would imagine on the national park side, you guys had an excellent year in a lot of different areas last year, I guess. Um, what, you know, I, you know, what do you do about the overwhelming number of new RVers and campers wanting to come? Um, you know, what's the future look like there as far as being able to get more people camping in the parks, I guess? Well, I mean, I think it's all about um, letting the users know the availability and part of our kind of that first tier of the overall campground strategy is um, looking at how we share data across the park service with ourselves and also with the visitors and um, bumping up the number of opportunities in National Park Service campgrounds for reserving campsites ahead of time and looking at the inventory that's available ahead of time. And that really helps um, a lot of users, not all, some users like to be more kind of last minute. So we need to try and accommodate both of those. But part of the strategy over the last um, year and a half we um, did increase the number of National Park Service campsites that were available for advanced reservation on recreation.gov. I'm looking at my data here. Um, we added 1,800 new campsites. So the campsites were existing, but they weren't previously available for advanced reservation on recreation.gov. We found that was really a good communication tool, especially during this past summer with COVID restrictions, really helping people kind of target where and when they could get out safely. Yeah, I think Derek mentioned on the comments, he mentions, you know, that overnight stage in national parks are down over the past 30 years, including RV overnights. I don't quite um, know um, where those numbers come from, but that's what he mentioned and I know. Well, just let's give it a chance, right? Is that yeah. actually accurate, Tamara, or no? I mean, is which part accurate? He, he mentioned a comment that just said National Park RV nights are, are down for the last 30, 30 years. I feel like national parks are packed. I'm not sure that that's accurate, but that that comes from Park Service numbers. I mean, I, I've tracked them, and okay. I didn't De Derek and I have talked about them quite a bit. Yeah, it's go ahead, Karen. I was just going to say, I think, you know, we're seeing interesting uh, numbers specific to day use and things like that. But I think, you know, potentially the overnight stuff is is down considering the growth of the private sector. And, and you know, I think the the national or the the federal parks in Canada's instance are doing a better job of really facilitating great partnerships with private operators that are near their their locations. And so I think that's uh, impacting those things too. And and I think there's some appetite from some parts of the market who want to see 
more careful use of those lands. And so, you know, that a few less nights over the last 30 years uh, is advantageous in the eyes of some, some individuals, for sure. Well, so this is something we should explore, right? Because I feel like there's a, a nice balance here between national parks and private parks, and we can all get along and play well together for the benefit of the whole outdoor industry, right? Uh, so I know that you know, there are some people who, like clients that we have, that view it as competition. I don't. Um, but I think that there's, is there any data, Tamara, about like the overflow that comes from national parks or the interest that, that people come to an area and then overflow and kind of increase the private park business as a result of that? Or So I don't have at my fingertips um, analytical data across the system, but I can give anecdotal data from individual parks, from conversations that I've had. And I know parks like Grand Teton are showing that because the camps, uh, the campsites in the camp, in the park itself are full, that the public lands and the private campgrounds outside the park boundaries are um, seeing that overflow and that they are starting at that park to work with the other public lands agencies to kind of manage that better. And as opposed to people kind of showing up, not getting a campground or campsite in the campground in the park, and then kind of ditching off into the U.S. Forest Service outside. Um, from what I hear, that particular park, the private campgrounds are always booked as well as the public campgrounds within the park itself. Mm -hmm. You know, what I'd be curious about seeing, you know, Derek mentioned the decline in, in overnight stays in, in national parks. What's it looking like on other public lands? Are, are people getting fed up, to use a phrase, with the congestion in a national park and opting to go to a forest service campground, perhaps, or a BLM campground? I mean, the, the park service doesn't have a, a monopoly on beauty in outdoors. Well, that's that's true, and it's, so this balance is interesting, though. And so let's give Al a chance to to comment here. Al, how do you see that? How does that balance play out at the at the rack parks that are near national parks? I hate to think that, <clears throat> excuse me, that our parks would be overflow parks. That's not a very good, strong business proposition. Oh, no, no, no. Just, one Just one example. But um, the the park needs to to be desirable too. Yes. And in in relation to the national park or the national forest campgrounds, uh, I think probably more of those have been closed down because of budget restrictions for national park campgrounds. I think they they tend to, if they have a rundown campground and can't afford to fix it up, they put a gate on it. Um, I don't know that the National Park Service does that nearly as much, but I think that the Great American Act is going to really help um, maintain both there, if not expand. And I think that at first I thought that it might be easier for the government agency to improve and expand their campgrounds than it is for the private parks to do it because of regulatory issues. But the more I think about it, they're probably more challenged by regulatory issues, NEPA and things like that, that most private parks don't have to deal with. We have to deal with local planning boards and things like that. Um, but, but it's just a challenge for everybody in this industry to be nimble enough to react to the, um, the new campers that are entering the market now. Yeah. 
It's just on overflow. What I meant to, to kind of tie that in together with is that there's a lot of people who think that national parks compete with private parks and take away some of their camper nights. But on the flip side, they're kind of giving some back too by drawing more interest into an area and having that overflow available to you. So I think it kind of balances out is what my goal was there to say that. Yeah, well, I, and I think that's true. I think that um, that private the private sector has proven uh, to be more nimble in providing what guests want. Uh, but that's not really a fair statement because the National Park Service has done too much in the last you know, 50, 60 years after they, they started these beautiful campgrounds. They haven't changed a whole lot. Some of them have, but, but um, in general, it's been up to the private campground operators to determine what people want to buy that. If the National Park Service moved to provide everything that private campgrounds provide, it would be a competitive challenge. If the National Park Service wanted to put in swimming pools and water slides and and uh, things like that, I don't see that happening. I'm just saying it depends on what the uh, the developments are and how they come into it. Yeah, yeah. I, Derek here is saying in Rocky Mountain National Park at Estes Park entrance, there were five campgrounds 20 years ago, and now there are three. Do you think that that has to do with what I was saying about a park still, the park still needs to be desirable? Do you think those, out of those five, only those three were, were nimble enough to offer the desirability that, that kept them open? Or is that a, a lack of traffic and, and, and lack of business through the doors that closed those other two? I'm sorry, I can't speak to why those campgrounds. Speculation, yeah, <laughs> for sure. I, I, uh, I honestly didn't even know that fact. So <laughs> it's interesting to me. That's, yeah. Um, so. You know, you know, back in 2014, I had a conversation with John Jarvis, who at the time was the director of the National Park Service. And he'd said that he was concerned that uh, national parks were losing their relevancy with the American public. And um, I, I haven't had a chance uh, before today's talk to, to look at the numbers to see if there was a downswing. Um, and maybe there was coming out of the 20th century that led to those park campgrounds being closed. But then we saw the Centennial Park Service in 2016 and the numbers have just been off the charts since then. Um, well, and I, can, and I can share that Across the system this past summer, just like the private sector, we saw massive increases in brand oh, yeah. use, you know, um, as I know the private sector did as well. Yeah. Well, I think there's always going to be two different types of campers, right? Uh, yes, there's going to be some shared people who could go to either a national park campground or a private, but there are always going to be people who want to be in nature as opposed to next to it or near it, with the obvious exception that Al's got the one park inside, right? But for the most part, uh, and there's going to be people who prefer to have more rustic experiences than having all the water slides and things like that. And so I think that especially with the growing popularity of the outdoors, there's always going to be people to fill these sites. We just have to figure out what the, the balance is. And I think that it's in the best interest of both people to try to figure that out. But let's talk briefly about this American Outdoors Act. What is what is this going to change for the National Park Service, Tam? So the Great American Outdoors Act focus is really on reducing deferred maintenance. It's written right in the act and it's what Congress is going to be holding us to. So the program management office will be 
um, working with the Bureau's Investment Review Board to really hone in on strategic criteria for selecting projects. The fiscal year 21 project selection list is available through the Department of Interior. Um, we have not finalized the fiscal year 22 list, but we're working on that next. Um, so it's really a matter of looking across the system at all of the areas where we have the most deferred maintenance that we can um, impact positively. So some campgrounds will be involved, but it's not a campground centric fund source. Um, so there's gonna be a range of projects that are addressed with the act. And I think something that needs to be kept in mind is it's not a panacea for the park services needs. There are just too many needs out there that have been the result of, frankly, lack of uh, federal funding that the parks need to, to maintain. I mean, over the years we've seen a growth in national park uh, additions. I mean, when I started the Traveler, I think there was 390. And today, what, there's uh, 423, Tamara? 423. And wow. a lot of those, a lot of those join the system with their own maintenance backlog. And so um, while the Great American Outdoors Act will, will solve some problems, it's not gonna come close to solving all the problems. In fact, you can you can look at it, was it 1.3, $1.5 billion a year it goes to the Park Service TAM? And I think you can have three parks could gobble up all that money. Sure, yeah. I, I, still, I, still a very, very positive development to have that awesome. available and, and to have the, the focus that's there, whether it's 100% focus or not, Kurt, uh, what focus there is on camping in the national parks is a very, very positive development. It'll be very helpful. Uh, the people that choose to stay there need to also have good roads and good other facilities to make their stay enjoyable too. So it, it all really works together to get people outdoors. I think it's just very positive. My point though, is that we can't rest on our laurels and say we passed the Great American Outdoors Act and everything's gonna be great in the national parks. Sure. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't think the majority of people are. But at the same time, correct me if I'm wrong. This was passed before COVID, right? Earlier. It was passed. It was, during, it was during COVID last summer. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. yeah. So I think that now that we've seen this extraordinary interest in the outdoors that's resulted from this, if there's one positive maybe we can take from this experience is that there's more attention on the National Park Service, and so maybe that helps us take step two and step three for going forward. <laughs> And and th this act does give like uh, funding for the future, continual funding for the future, correct? So the act, the act itself has two different fund sources associated okay. with it. The Legacy Restoration Fund, which is what's applied to deferred maintenance and is that $1.9 billion per year for five years. Okay. That is only five years. The other fund source that was identified in the act is the LWCF funding, and that fund source is um, in perpetuity. So what does the, you know, I'm, I'm newer, I get, uh, you know, you know, I haven't read the entire bill. It's quite long, I guess. What does the LCWF funds, I guess, what can you guys use that for on an annual basis? So I'm not an expert on that fund source. I bet Kurt yeah. knows more about this than me. But I will share that it is the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So it can be used, a couple things it can be used for are partnership projects. It can be applied to state parks and forest service, 
I'm sorry, not Forest Service, that would be a different bureau, but state parks or kind of local parks in partnership with National Park Service, as well as acquiring additional lands, um, okay. maybe lands that might be in a park or conti contingent to a park. Okay, all right. And that's, you mentioned state parks. There's a comment here that we got from Margaret Bailey too. Uh, we understand this is an NPS-focused call, but when you talk about campgrounds in the public sector, we cannot ignore the state parks, forest service, as well as BLM. I know when I, I spent three years on the road at the very beginning of this company, like building it, and we would stay in all kinds of different state parks. We would do videos on the Tennessee state park system, on Florida state park system, and, and Kentucky has like a really, really nice state park system, I know. Uh, Florida's got some amazing houses that you can rent. Uh, yeah. This was, you know, 10 years ago. I'm sure, obviously, some of it's changed. But so, yeah, it's 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 something that we can't ignore. But I think that those state parks kind of function in the same way this discussion has been going, right? They help draw interest to an area that may not otherwise have it. And so I think that there's a, a balance there for both private and public. Is that correct? Or? Absolutely. I completely agree. I was hoping to get somebody from a couple of our provincial parks uh, uh, bodies up here to join us today. Uh, I, I imagine the the kind of basic framework stuff is comparable to how the state parks and 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 uh, NPS are related down there. But um, here up uh, up here in Canada, for sure, our, our provincial parks, at least in um, <laughs> uh, sorry, our provincial parks, at least here in Alberta, are very numerous, and so they. Uh, uh, typically, you know, they have a ton of traffic. They see, you know, we, every season in the spring when they open their online reservation system, the website gets crashed because so many people are scrambling to to book their sites for the summer as soon as they possibly can have the chance. So it's absolutely a huge uh, factor in the in, to the specifically to the camping industry. Um, here in Alberta, and I'm I'm certainly think that's the same in, in each of the provinces. Uh, the the provincial uh, parks are really really gorgeous and definitely bring tons of new ac market access to to the industry for sure. And I think we were going to talk a little bit about the state parks um, down the road because I think on our calendar, we at least we're going to talk about privatizing. Um, you know, state parks. Um, I think that was on our schedule for, for I think it's sometime in March or something, or maybe in April. Uh, we were just going to talk a little bit about some state park systems that are looking at maybe privatizing. I think Mississippi or Louisiana was one of them um, that I had read about. So we are going to touch a little bit on some of the state park systems down the road too, um, yeah. which are huge for, um, parks and states and stuff too so um so al yeah. i have a question for you so obviously rack is uh owns a, you know we've talked about a multitude of different koa properties some in the national parks some not you, we talked about you know obviously nobody wants to be that overflow so you've built up you've listened to guest needs you've added amenities you've changed things like that so how do you feel like that plays with your marketing right and so to take your parks like is it you own one by mount rushmore am i correct there uh, that their main one is by Mount Rushmore, which is a national park that has no campground, and uh, therefore a great opportunity for us. Uh, but we also have one right next to Harper's Ferry National Park, which we share a boundary with, and, we're, and they also do not have a campground. So uh, we, we have a park in Cody, Wyoming, which serves the Yellowstone market, but from a distance away. 
So yeah, we're we're impacted by the national parks by the way we advertise them like crazy because that's the magnet, right? So, well, so that's where I was gonna that's where I was gonna actually take this is the advertising and the marketing question, right? Because that's my that's what I do for a living. And so we've got some clients who are near Yosemite, we've got some clients who are near the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, uh, quite a number of other ones, right? And so how does how does that influence what you do as far as marketing and advertising? Obviously, people are coming to the area to see the national park, but are you 50-50 with promoting the national park and promoting things like your water slides and premium sites and things like that? Or how does that balance out at Rack? Oh, well, I think, you know, most advertising is split. It talks about what there is to do in the area and why you should come to that area. And it also talks about the amenities that are available on the campground. Uh, repeat customers aren't as actively going to the national parks. Uh, when they come back, they might just come to spend a weekend on, on the park and use our amenities. It, it depends. You know, in, in Cody, that's kind of a pass-through place, uh, so that wouldn't necessarily be true. But, uh, you know, the, the national parks, even for campgrounds that are on the highway in the middle of Iowa, the national parks are very important because it's drawing people from Chicago to go to Yellowstone. So yeah. uh, we don't advertise Yellowstone in Des Moines, Iowa, but it's an important part of the reason that people are traveling and stopping them. You bet. We do marketing for a park in Dubois. I think it's Dubois, Wyoming, which is on the mm -hmm. uh, Dubois. Actually, right? Yeah, Dubois. 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 Mm -hmm. Sorry for the client who I just mispronounced your city on. Uh, but anyway, um, so yeah. It's a great that's, town. That's the thing, right? Like it's a it's a stopover and that town basically, it doesn't exist only for that. A lot of people stop there as an overnight on the way to, to split up that journey. And so it's important to those people too. You're right. I think that's where you're going with it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. I think um, Andrea commented when we were talking about some of the some of the American Outdoors Act stuff. Um, Andrea Lindy Hop. I don't know if that's how you pronounce your last name. I'm just horrible with last names and I guess first names now. So Andrea Lindy Hop. I think the key is using the new tools to be strategic, not just fixing up what's already there, thinking about the future, changes and trends, changes in people using the facilities, all of the nearby options like Forest Service, BML, private and more. Um, remember NPS numbers are higher than any other parks worldwide. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but um, I don't know if that's true or not. So, but uh, just the fact, you know, I think that's what a lot of this, like the guide that they're coming out with and the focus of the American Outdoors Act is looking towards the future and changes and trends and, and things, which is really mm -hmm. exciting to see. Cause I know on the private park side, we, um, you know, KOA has been great coming out with the study the last five or six years. Um, and it's really opened everyone's eyes to new trends and new areas of focus that, you know, the private park sector need to needs to focus on. So it's great to see the, the NPS focusing on, you know, looking towards the future and not just focusing on what's there. So I really, I want to commend Tamara for her work too, because I, from the hop, from the start of this conversation, uh, you really mentioned, you know, looking at these often on a really case by case basis because, you know, location and nearby amenities and so many factors go into, you know, strategically planning these things. And I, I think um, 
it's great to see that the NPS, you know, has a team who's obviously, you know, very cognizant of that and is using those tools to be strategic about, you know, development and changes into the future and, and how the market's going to look. I, I appreciate it so much. Thanks, Kara. Well, I know we also looked towards Parks Canada and some of the work that you guys have already done on design guides and, and things as we start started out our guide development as well. So, Cool. I think I think one of the areas that NPS is kind of leading in a little bit too is the ADA side. I know on the private park side, we've been talking a lot about the Americans with Disabilities Act and how it impacts private parks, but I know the NPS has already been doing a ton of work on that. I think you guys have quite a few ADA sites and campgrounds and things like that. So that's been great to see. Thank you. We, do, we are looking to continue improving that and being able to welcome as many people with a minute, as many different abilities as possible to the, to the campgrounds. So great. Yeah, I know on the private park side, that's something that we've been talking a lot about um, coming up with parks owners coming up with plans for how they're going to implement the ADA stuff into their parks and then you know obviously on the website side which is completely different that's been a huge topic too on the website side so mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't know how that stuff goes up in Canada as far as you know that kind yeah. of stuff so I the environment is very similar I think uh, accessibility is certainly a priority um, and, you know, we're seeing older campgrounds make lots of changes and, and new developments do some really cool, unique things to, uh, you know, increase accessibility across a broad range of ability levels, for sure. Um, and, I, and I see that just continuing perpetually. Yeah. Part of it is that the, the rules have been written for ADA for federal properties, but not yet for private ones. It's in development. Uh, but the NFPA 1194, the standards for private campgrounds, uh, independent but in concert with the uh, ADA regulations, have included um, campground accessibility standards in the latest version of NFPA 1194. So those, those standards are there. They're not official adopted by the government yet. Uh, but that was taking too long. So we got energetic and got it done uh, ahead of that. Well, the I thing out that the National Park Service is leading on, though, is recognizing the different uh, camp camping styles of different ethnic groups and trying to incorporate that where in the, in the markets that it makes sense to do that. So that's kind of um, interesting development as well. That's so yeah. great. I was going to... Al, we are uh, actively kind of sharing the NFP 1194 guideline stuff with our park members here in Canada as well. Similarly, we don't have any sort of regulatory uh, uh, governing body specific to campgrounds, but new developments are embracing those standards on the side of the border as well. That's yeah. great because our customers use both sides of the border, so the, yeah. the standards ought to be coordinated. Yes. So. Absolutely. Yeah, and for people who don't, uh, viewers who don't know, the NFPA 1194 is a standard that the National Association of RV Parks and Campgrounds it works with and that um, they utilize to kind of help build and campgrounds to certain plans and, and 
it contains rules and stuff, you know, guidelines on different ways to build out uh, campgrounds and things like that. So that can be used to present to like local officials and stuff when designing campgrounds and sites and things. I don't know if I explained that very well, but <laughs> I think that's a general take of what NFPA 1194 is. NFPA stands for National Fire Protection Association. Yeah. So it's it's independent of campgrounds. There's a few campground people on the panel, but it's mainly considered with life safety issues and design issues and things like that. Yeah, so it's a really good standard. Um, I just, uh, I, you know, with the Great American Outdoors Act, uh, I think maybe we touched on this earlier. It's just amazing the um, the amount of people that have been going outdoors um, during the COVID crisis. It, you know, it seemed to really spur that on. And it just looks like this year is just going to be another huge year for both national parks and private parks. And so it's great to see all of that because I really think, you know, the American Outdoors Act is great. Um, but it'd be great to see more of that stuff come along through the, you know, more funding and stuff come along down the road. And, and hopefully this kind of spurs that on a little bit more as um, more people hit the road and, and want to go camping and, and check out national parks. So. And Tamara, did you say there's a list online of what parks are for 2021 going to get the maintenance? Or? Yeah, there was an official press release through the Department of Interior um, that has a list of the projects in all of the bureaus, but including the National Park Service for fiscal year 21, which, as you probably know, our fiscal year starts in October. So October was our the beginning of our fiscal year 2021. So we're in second quarter now, nearly third quarter of the fiscal year. Um, but yeah, that's through the Department of Interior and I could um, email that to Ben after the call if you wanted to share that out. Yeah, and we actually ran a story on the, on the funding details for the Great American Outdoors Act. Um, so I think we ran that press release. I would just, yeah, I'll have to find it. I could put it in the comments of our Facebook page um, when we're done here. So you know, if, if reader, if listeners go to uh, nationalparkstraveler.org and uh, just uh, search for Great American Outdoors Act, it, it's the first uh, first hit. I just search for it and it come, comes right up, the DOI list. Yeah, and I can put a link to your website on our Facebook page too. It's a Natural Parks Traveler is a really good resource for staying up to date on everything that's going on. And they do pod, you, you guys do like a podcast audio um, thing every week. And you, I mean, not just like news either. You guys are diving into like the history of the parks and different things. So that's really great. So. Is there a, I mean, I don't obviously don't want to go into the whole list, right? But is there something that either Kurt or Tamara sticks out in your mind as some, some of the bigger national parks that are going to be benefiting in 2021 from some of this maintenance? Well, um, since we're talking about campgrounds, I can share that there are a couple um, projects with campgrounds on the list. Um, Yosemite has uh, two campgrounds that are getting funding through the Legacy Restoration Fund, uh, Tuolumne Meadows, and um, I'm sorry, I'm kind of spacing the other name. but Bridalvale Creek Campground? Yes. Thank you, Kurt. Bridalvale Creek. Um, and let's see, Mount Rainier has a campground project on the fiscal year 21 list as well. Nice. So there's Sequoia and Kings Canyon, the Lodgepole campground water system is going to be rehabbed. Um, 
there, there's a bunch of them out there. That's so great. Well, that's yeah. good. I mean, we, yeah, we don't want to go to the whole list. I just wanted to know if there's a couple that touched on. You mentioned Yosemite too. Like this is, and just circling back real briefly to this because it's it's something that we consistently hear. At least I hear is that. Uh, there's that that fear of competition from some of the private park owners and, and we can actually see this like i was spending the weekend working on a, a client we have who's a private park right outside of yosemite we can see this in the data of what people search for that people are clearly looking for campground in yosemite or campground near yosemite and there's very two different clear audiences of what people are looking for and so uh, i think that just balances out well and i just wanted to bring that up again to, to sh like it's People know what they want, and, and there's plenty of people to go around to, to make everybody happy. I think, especially with what we've had in 2020 and leading into 2021 now. And I and I wonder too, um, you know, if sometimes like travelers just assume, like when it comes to Yosemite or maybe like Yellowstone, that maybe they assume that you know the campgrounds are going to be pretty full because I imagine the national park campgrounds stay pretty full during that summer months. So maybe they just. Um, you know, obviously, maybe they just decide they would rather look for another campground or, or stuff like that around there. So, well, there's positives and negatives to both experiences, right? I mean, obviously, yeah. you want to be as close to nature as possible, but maybe you don't want to deal with all those crowds. And so maybe you want to stay near Yosemite, or maybe you're not just visiting the national park. Maybe you're visiting other things in the area. And so it's more convenient for you to stay yep. outside of the park. But it's, it's very clear, like, in, at least in the data that we're seeing, that people are already looking for the experience that they want. And so, you know, case by case, just using our example, right? I don't want to show ads when somebody's for my product. Whoops. Oh, we've lost you. Oh, you lost me? Oh, yeah, we lost, now. You brief, we lost you briefly. Oh, sorry. So, I don't know. Anyway, so people are very, but my point is, is people are very clearly looking for an experience. And so we don't want to show ads, for example, for our private park when somebody's looking for campgrounds in Yosemite because we already know what they're looking for. And so we would step back in that case and let people find what they're looking for. And there's plenty of traffic to fill our park for the people looking for near, for around, for things like that. It's uh, just great to be able to coexist in that way and just kind of see that data. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah. You know, one thing, Tamara, I'm curious if you know, um, last year, Yellowstone, some of the campgrounds um, didn't open until late summer because of a staffing situation with COVID. And um, I guess we really don't know what's going to happen this year with COVID as far as whether parks are going to have their entire seasonal workforce in play. And if, if not, will some of the campgrounds be closed this year? Well, I, last year with COVID, it was really on a park by park basis, um, dependent on what the local situation was with COVID. And I think this year will end up being the same. We'll just be very locally focused on what the what the scenario is on the ground in the county and state that each park is located in. Yeah, so it's really important for travelers to check out a, a park-specific website to see what's open. And I know last year we tried to keep a, a, a daily list of uh, camp, campgrounds and parks that were open, and we'll try and do that again this year. Yeah. Um, in general, in general private parks, work very hard to find accommodations for guests that show up that don't have reservations. We try to find a, another park nearby and our federal partners are getting better and better at, at providing that same assistance to people that are looking. So that's great. And I think yeah. on, the, on the public side, um, the continued and increased use of recreation.gov as a tool 
to you know communicate with visitors and guests when things might be closed or even for emergencies you know if Tuolumne Meadows for instance has the project is moving campsites out of the floodplain and you know but if you have campsites that are in a floodplain and they've been reserved through recreation.gov then you can at least push out that information to guests it becomes a you know communication tool absolutely and it's a way we can do things like partnering more as al suggested and you get and you guys have come out with the it looks like you guys are still you're coming out with this new app too or you launched it and it's kind of still being developed which is kind of a neat tool too so. Yeah, you can. I'm not new. It's the National Park Service app. Just search. It's available on Apple or Android for free, and you can search by different activities, including camping. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So. Sam, I have a question. If if you're one of our like we're watched by a lot of campground owners out there, right? Who just like Al, maybe near national parks or impacted by national parks, like you boys or. They're being traveled through. If I'm a private campground owner and I want to work more closely with my national park that's in my area, how would I go about doing that? I didn't. I didn't quite hear the whole question. If somebody could repeat it, does anybody get the whole thing? Can you hear me okay now? Yeah. I think. I think the question was if you're a private campground owner outside of a national park. How can you work with the park staff? How do so, you not, not work with the park staff, but work with the park to have a better partnership so that you, you can both benefit. So every park is going to have a public information officer. And I would suggest starting with contacting that person and expressing the interest in developing a stronger partnership. And again, each park is kind of run by its own staff. And it's going to be individual to each park unit, to how you can work together with them. But that's definitely something the Park Service is um, interested in continuing to do. And we work with a lot of partners across the system. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, well, it's oh, it's almost noon. I know we had um, at, at least um, one person that had to leave for a meeting. I don't know, Brian. Did did you have to leave or not? Well, I'm I think a little bit of flexibility, but let's let let's let everybody just kind of. Al, do you have anything closing before, just so we can let everybody oh, up if they need to? Good conversation. I, I get call out uh, Derek Crandall, who probably uh, has been an energy behind modernizing national park campgrounds before anybody else and i see where he's been participating in this he should have been here instead of me uh but but derek has done wonderful work over, over a number of years to make this happen yeah it'd be awesome to connect with him yeah after this well if you Joe. have to jump al uh really appreciate you being here on the show um you know as always we all know rack's a leader in the industry um, you guys got a lot of different parts, continue to grow, that kind of stuff. And so we definitely appreciate your voice and, and your thoughts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, um, Tamara, it, I, I don't know. Did I pronounce that right this time? No. no. Uh, Tamara. Tamara. <laughs> Tamara. 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 Uh, it's been great um, um, just talking with you. And thanks so much for being willing to come on. And it was uh Great just hearing some of the stuff you've been working on and some of the things um, that we can look forward to, I guess, down the road. So 
Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the conversation and the continued partnership uh, with folks like Al and Derek Crandall. And um, it's great to meet you guys on the call. Yeah, uh, too. Look forward to continuing the conversation in the future. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, so, Sarah. Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, yeah, so guys, jump off if you need to. But then, Kurt, all right. tell us just a little yeah. bit more. Kurt, tell us about what National Park covers, too, because obviously it's National Parks. But what are some of the things that you really want people to come to your website to learn about? You know, National Parks Traveler is, is kind of a hybrid between a daily newspaper and a magazine. And um, so we'll have a lot of news related items, you know, whether a campground is open or closed, whether there's a search and rescue mission in a national park, uh, what is Congress doing in terms of uh, uh, funding the national parks or managing them. Um, and at the same time, we, we do longer features, whether it's uh, probing an issue like uh, a story we put up yesterday that is just being slammed with comments is what should the National Park Service do with Confederate monuments and statues in the national yeah. battlefields? I can't see how that would be controversial. No, not at all. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, we looked at the, the RV industry and how it's uh, really seen a lot of business um, due to COVID. Um, we'll have a feature coming up on um, the 30 by 30 initiative and, and what are private companies in the outdoor industry doing to help support that um <clears throat> you know we can't we can't compete on a daily basis with the national media like the washington post or the la times or new york times because um, you're looking at the staff um you know eventually or occasionally we break national stories but what we're really trying to do is in addition to providing a service such as last year telling people which parks were open during COVID or which parks were closed um, we're trying to look at the overlooked stories or the stories that are ignored for some reason by the national media. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, you guys do a, a wonderful job. I mean, it's just, um, you know, I hadn't, I haven't been able to read the future of Confederate monuments yet, but um, <laughs> I, I looked it up real quick and it definitely looks like an interesting story. And um, I mean, you guys are definitely, you know, you guys definitely dive into some topics that, um, are you know extremely interesting i like the history stuff that you guys do too so they do some stuff on on like the historical parts of some of the parks um you you do some opinion pieces too um and you obviously have the podcast so you're just working in a bunch of different areas you're fun you're a nonprofit, correct so you we are so give so give and give often <laughs> so and you guys have partnerships with um, some of the, um, you know, some of the support from like the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation and Yosemite Conservancy. So you have some support from some of the larger um, groups and the national park that support national parks. So that's great, too. So, yeah, and we're hoping to, to build on that with uh, support from the industry, because, you know, without adequate funding, the travel is not going to last forever. And uh, we were read by over three million readers and listeners a year. And so we wow. definitely, definitely found a niche that people really like. And with the, the movement to Canada, with more coverage of Parks Canada, we're seeing increased readership up there. So it's a, a really popular website. Yeah, yeah. So, and you guys redesigned it this year too, or the end of last year. So, yeah, the end of last year. Yeah. yeah, so, okay. All right, well, I don't have anything else. Do you have anything else, Ben? No, I see Kara ditched us. Well, she might have lost the internet connection. I mean, don't judge her. 
So no, I think it's been a really great conversation and thanks Alan Kurt for coming on and being willing to take part and Tamara for uh, coming on and uh, yeah. So um, well, thanks for the invite. It's been fun. Yeah. So we'll definitely keep you guys in mind and hopefully we can work with both of you on different things down the road. So sounds good. All right. So. Thank you guys. Have a great day. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Bye.